0: I'll be reading from Hebrews 3, 7 through 14. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my words and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, They always go astray in their hearts. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if it is indeed we hold our original confession, confidence, firm to the end.
1: Good morning. Let's go to the Lord in prayer together. Father, we are so grateful for your love, for your grace, for your redemption. And Lord, now we thank you for your word that is good and true and imperishable, unfading. Father, we thank you for this wonderful word that is faithful in building up your church in accordance to your spirit's power. And Father, we pray now that as we enter into this time of the sermon, Lord, that the words from my mouth would be, first and foremost, pleasing to your ears and faithful to your scriptures, but Lord, that they would be used by your spirit to to build up the saints who are gathered here on this Sunday morning for worship. Father, we pray that you would open our hearts to the truth of your word, and Lord, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear the truth that awaits us from Hebrews this morning it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, this is our first Sunday at a new location. So thank you for being here this morning. And I guess nobody got lost on their way over here, so that's a good sign. So you made it, and hopefully we didn't leave anybody behind. But uh, but thank you for being here this morning, and just so excited to, to be regularly meeting here now. And so thanks to all who came out yesterday. But we're looking forward to this being a place where uh, we can meet for the time being, and again, the church isn't a place, it's a people, and nothing like being a church plant reminds you of that truth, um, as where we're constantly in a season of change and growth, but but thank you for being here, and as you can see, it's a little bit more comfortable, you're not quite as squished, right, and uh, you don't have to, to go to the bathroom and everybody can hear you, right, during the middle of the service, um, so you can go down the hall and to the left, so it's a, a little bit more accommodating, great for our children, and as you can see too, there's There's plenty of room for growth, and that's one of the reasons why we thought this would be a great location, um, is it gives us room to expand and to see new people. And so, even though we're not officially a church yet, and we haven't publicly launched to the community, um, again, feel free as the Lord leads, if you want to invite somebody to come and worship with us, that is always encouraged. Um, but today we're going to continue as we're preparing for the the launch of Redemption Church and the founding of Redemption Church. We're, we're going through the scriptures to kind of unpack and uncover what the Bible has to say just about the church. And so today we're going to be thinking about the membership of the church and be spending a little bit time as far as uh, the need for church membership, which is the title of the message for today from from the book of Hebrews chapter 3 so um, anybody go to, to Fike or hunt high school here All right, a few of you did I knew there, there's a few locals a few of you proud some of you hanging your head in shame but that's okay you know who you are but but you know I don't have to tell you then that high school sports can be quite competitive can't they I mean they can be quite ruthless I've heard stories about the, the hunt and fight football game, and whenever that comes around each year, we know that it's going to be a little intense. But, but I came across this news story this last fall about a beautiful picture of sportsmanship uh, amongst high schoolers. So there was a cross-country match in Nebraska, and there was a high school student named Megan who saw that, that one of her competitors, who was a girl named Emma, had fallen down in the middle of the race, and she was just flat exhausted. Again, it's a cross-country race, so it's a, it's a long race, many miles, and she just fell out in complete and total exhaustion. And so she's within the side of the finish line, though. She's so close, but she just didn't have any more gas in her tank. So Megan sees this girl, Emma, collapse, and she goes up to Emma and tells her that we're going to finish the race. And she goes up to, to Emma and she... Uh, puts her arm around her and begins to walk with her towards the finish line so that she can finish the race. But Emma's knees continue to buckle. I mean, she was just flat, exhausted and fatigued. And as she struggled towards the finish line, she fell again so close, just a, a few meters away. And Megan, in order to make sure she finished, literally she couldn't pick her up. She was too heavy, but she literally dragged her across the finish line so that she finished the race. Now, that's such a a good, heartwarming sportsmanship story, right? Of of really what it means to not just be competitors, but just to serve one another and be to be a good sport. But I think that's not only just a feel-good story about high schoolers serving one another in a sportsmanlike way, it's also a a picture of the church. Because the church is an assurance of salvation co-op. That's what the church is. It exists to, to help every one of us who are in Christ and who have con- covenanted together and committed to one another that, that God has placed us together to make sure that every one of us crosses that finish line. That we will do everything within our power to help the people that we have covenanted to get together. We will lock arms with them and we will make sure we'll cross the finish line together. Because after all, the, the, the Christian life is often compared to a race in the scriptures, isn't it? Let me just give you a couple examples. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7, Paul's at the end of his life, and this is what he says, I have fought the good faith, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith, or Later on in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. So the Christian life is a marathon, it's a race. And when we are in this marathon of the Christian life, we will also find that we need one another's help. That when a member of our covenant family is struggling, that we must pick them up, carry them across our shoulders if we must. In fact, we might even have to drag them across the finish line, but when it comes to the local church, there is no man, no woman left behind. We all cross the finish line Together. However, this is a very different picture of church membership than in the local church than you might be familiar with, and that maybe you've ever seen before or you've ever seen practiced. On the one hand, you know, many consider the church simply an event you attend, not a community to which you belong. And those are very different things. So because people see church as an event, you have a lot of people who are just completely uninterested in membership. That sounds too committee for for culture nowadays, right? Uh, Who wants to be a, a member? And so some churches are even doing away with the whole concept of church membership, just kind of rejecting it as some antiquated way of doing things. But on the other hand, many churches have membership, but it's treated with such flippancy that the membership in the church is practically meaningless practically meaningless for example in 2017 the southern baptist convention which redemption church will be a southern baptist church so these are our people right in 2017 southern baptist churches across all of their churches had 15 million members that's a lot of members right across all southern baptists but yet the average weekly worship attendance across the southern baptist convention was only five million people so when I hear statistics like that, I always ask myself, where are the 10 million people on Sunday mornings? Where are they? How, how have we watered down the teaching on church membership so much so that two-thirds of the SBC membership doesn't even show up for worship on Sunday morning and nobody even bats an eye? I mean, who, who are those people? Who are those 10 million people? Who knows them? Who is helping them cross the finish line? And the tragic answer, of course, is no one is. No one knows who they are, more than likely, because the church has, has sprinted in such success leaving anyone behind necessary for the, the institution's success, and they've left people behind in the wake of institutional progress, even if it may, meant passing by the struggling saints on their knees, gasping for breath on the pavement. You see, when the church becomes more about its own success, about its own statistics, it leaves individuals behind in its ambitious wake. See, rather than a covenant family, and an assurance of salvation co-op the church has in many ways become a cold mechanical distant organization driven by statistical success you see as we prepare to plant redemption church we want to take covenant membership seriously why well because the bible takes membership seriously And as we read the New Testament, particularly in passages like the one before us from Hebrews chapter 3, 7 through 14, we see that that Christians are called to exhort one another in order to protect one another from the deceitfulness of sin so that we might hold our confidence in Christ in the end. So here's the, the sermon in a sentence, a summary statement, right? Here's what I'm going to try to to teach you from this passage. That we practice covenant church membership because we confess our wavering hearts and we acknowledge our need for the church so that we might finish the race of faith. So we acknowledge our wavering hearts. We confess that our hearts are prone to wander and we acknowledge that we need the church we need a covenant group of people who can care for us and look out for us and watch us so that we don't fall away so that we continue in Christ finishing our race faithfully so that we cross the finish line so let's talk about that that first aspect right we confess Our wavering hearts. We confess our wavering hearts. So the the book of Hebrews, we're just kind of jumping right in the middle of it. So let me give you a little bit of a context of what's going around this book before we begin. So, So Hebrews is a homily. It's a sermon. It's addressed most likely to a congregation. And though we are unsure of the identity of the author of the book of Hebrews, we do know that this is an individual that had a deep understanding of the Old Testament. And so a key theme in this sermon, in the book of Hebrews, is this idea of recurring calling for perseverance. The author of Hebrews is always stopping in the middle of his argument saying, hey, by the way, this is why you need to hold on. This is why you need to continue. This is why you need to persevere. Don't abandon Jesus. He's constantly giving those warnings and those cautions, those exhortations, because following Christ has never been easy, despite what people might tell you. It's never easy. And during the first century, century, it was really not easy because the intensity of the persecution during the early church was so heavy, so difficult, so hot that many of the Christians were beginning to wonder if following Jesus was even worth it or not. Is it worth following Jesus if it's going to be this bad, if the fire is going to be this hot? And for some, the fire was getting so hot that they decided to just walk away from the faith. And so the author of Hebrews is providing warning after warning, caution after caution for the church to persevere in the faith, to not abandon Jesus. That through every fiery trial, he summons them to endure in Christ, to persevere till the end. So as Jesus said in Mark chapter 13, verse 13, it is only those... Who endure to the end, who will be saved. So, though we are justified by faith alone, meaning that by our profession of faith we are immediately made righteous before God, saving faith does not appear and then disappear, but rather it endures till the end. It continues over the course of our lives until Jesus calls us home. So endurance is the mark of those who have been truly born again. Endurance is the mark. Those who have fallen away from Jesus prove that they never had a believing heart to begin with. As our confession of faith puts it, they were superficial professors, right? They, weren't, they didn't really put their faith in Christ. So to go back to our racing analogy... The Bible says quite clearly it's only those who cross the finish line that receive the prize. Those who endure in faith to the end. And it's not that our endurance is a work that justifies us. Not what the scripture says. Our endurance doesn't earn our salvation in any way. But rather those who are truly in Christ will endure till the end by the power of Christ. He holds his saints and their wavering, wavering faith Secure until the end. So though the saints are secure in Christ, the true saints, the author of Hebrews, though, he warns us never to be presumptuous about that. That a prideful confidence in your own ability to persevere blinds you from the deceitfulness of sin that lurks beneath your own heart. As the author of Hebrews warns, we must take care To examine our hearts because our own sin can easily harden our hearts to unbelief. So in Hebrews 3, 7 through 11, the author quotes Psalm chapter 95. Psalm 95, verse 7 through 11. And it's interesting, right? Right in verse 7, he affirms the Holy Spirit's authorship of the Psalter, doesn't he? He says, the Holy Spirit says... And then quote Psalm 95, right? Nod to the inspiration of Scripture there. So the Psalm 95, it's a historical one if you go back and look at it. And as you look at the Psalm, it's, it's designed to teach a lesson. It's designed to look at Israel's history and say, this are, these are some lessons that we need to learn about this Psalm from, from Israel's history. So the Psalm recalls the grumbling of Israel in the wilderness over the lack of water at Mirabah and Massah. So the event referred to in Psalm 95 is actually recorded in Exodus chapter 17, verse 1 through 7. But the psalmist uses this event in Israel, the grumbling over the water, right? Oh, we're thirsty, we need something to drink, right? So they're grumbling against God as they're wandering in the wilderness. And so the author of the psalm uses this event as illustrative of the fact that this is a, the beginning of a recurring pattern in Israel of constantly hardening their heart in unbelief against God. And of course, as we look at Israel's history in the wilderness and trying to get into the promised land, we see just how hard-hearted they really were. That rather than believe in the promises of God, that God would bring them into the promised land. Remember, they're standing at the edge of it, and they send in spies to investigate the land, and they come back, and the spies say, well, it's a beautiful land. It's flowing with milk and honey. It's wonderful, but there's giants there. I'm not sure we can take them. Yeah, sure, our God just, you know, been leading us by a pillar of fire. Sure, he opened the Red Sea for us. I mean, sure, he he killed the firstborn of all the Egyptians, but I'm not sure he can handle these giants. And they disbelieve God, don't they? And they, they reject the promises of God. And so because of their unbelief, Israel wandered in the wilderness for 40 years until that entire generation died out except for Joshua and Caleb. That generation never entered the land of rest because they were hard-hearted and because they didn't believe. So the psalmist from Psalm 95 and the author of Hebrews, which is referring to this psalm, right, and quoting it, he realizes that the core of Israel's problem was their hardened heart that they did not believe the promises of God. They did not believe God was capable of bringing them into the promised land. And so as the author of Hebrews is, is preaching to a primarily Jewish audience, these are Jewish Christians who now find themselves in a very similar predicament to Israel in the book of Exodus, right? In the, in the Old Testament. He finds themselves in that same conjecture. That they have been given the promise of Christ. That Christ has told me, I will bring you into the land of rest. I will bring you into glory. I will bring you into the presence of my, my Father. You will share in my resurrected victory. Christ has given these Christians this promise. But nevertheless, the journey now through the wilderness is hard. It's suffering. It's painful. And these Jewish Christians are suffering, they're being persecuted, they're being martyred for their faith, and all this suffering and persecution is causing them to waver, to begin to wonder, is is Jesus really right? Can I count on his promises? I mean, wouldn't it be easier to just stop being a Christian and just go back to Judaism where nobody tried to kill me? You know, can God's promises really be trusted? Is there really rest? on the other side of this suffering I'm now experiencing? Those are the questions that the original audience, the Hebrews, is asking. And the author of Hebrews, through citing Psalm 95, makes the point that the issue at play is unbelief. It's got nothing to do with the suffering. It's got everything to do with unbelief. Suffering can certainly make the faithful doubt. Hardship can lead the church to question God's promises. And so therefore, the author says that they must take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. There's the warning from the passage, right? That sin is pernicious and it is deadly. That sin slowly chips away at our confidence. That even for those who are truly born again and who will truly persevere, we have to be on guard against unbelief. We have to be on guard against our sinful hearts that can slowly begin to erode our confidence in the promises of God. And if we will be on guard against the schemes of the devil, we must know ourselves. We must know ourselves. We must confess. We have to acknowledge that within you, within me, lies this sinful nature that is prone to doubt and to cowardice that though by the spirit my sinful nature is being put to death slowly but surely by the power of Christ that now on this side of glory that sinful nature still lingers still lingers still there still present in me so we must be vigilant We must be vigilant and watchful over our own hearts, knowing that our hearts will drift towards unbelief. They will drift towards unbelief. It's just going to start taking you there. Like the undertow of the ocean's pool, our sin drifts us away from the good shore of God's promises. We cannot be naive about who we are, and nor can we underestimate the power of our enemy. And sadly, it seems like every week nowadays we hear about some Christian leader being caught up in the midst of some sin. It's enough so much we don't even want to go on social media anymore because you always hear about some other prominent Christian figure having some sort of sin issue, porn, alcoholism, adultery, some sort of abusive authority, and the list goes on and on and on and on. And when it happens to public leaders in the church, It's easy to to grab our attention, of course, because they're public, and we tend to kind of look in prideful judgment over these people, and and we say, man, I would never do that. I would never find myself in that situation. However, as soon as we think those words, it shows us just how much we are overestimating our own ability and how much we are underestimating our sin that instead of self-righteousness to those situations, we should respond, but for the grace of God, there goes I. You see, knowing our frailty and weakness should cause us to humble ourselves because our sinful heart should create within us a strong sense of need, a need for Christ and a need for his church. So what does this have to do with church membership? Well, if you don't think you have any need, then you won't be concerned about belonging to a church. Those who attempt to live the Christian life in isolation tend to find themselves quickly devoured by the enemy, that their own sin inevitably tends to overtake them and destroy them, that their own heart, slowly but surely, it's not usually just a one-day thing where someone just wakes up and I don't believe in Jesus anymore. That's not usually the way it works, right? But normally, slowly but surely, their heart becomes calloused and unbelief. And more often than not, they tend to fall away, proving that they never really had a heart of belief to begin with. You see, when it comes to the Christian faith, there is safety and numbers. Birds, flock, sheep, herd, fish, school, and Christians are like Marvel's Avengers. They assemble. <laughs> right? Right? That's what the word church means, isn't it? It means the called out ones, the assembly. That's what the word church means. That's what Christians do. We assemble together. We don't live the life of faith in isolation, but rather the community of the church protects us from ourselves. The safety of the Christian community protects us, not from some mean world out there that's going to get you. Right? That's, that's not what we're talking about. The church doesn't protect you from the world. The church protects you from you. That's what the church is there to protect. Your greatest enemy is not some persecution or suffering out there. Your greatest enemy is your sinful and unbelieving heart that's prone to wander away from the Lord. The enemy for the Christian is not external, but it's Internal. The greatest danger to your faith is not persecution, it's unbelief. And the church is God's gift to protect you from you. This leads to the second truth this morning. That not only do we need to confess our wavering hearts, but we must acknowledge our need for the church. We must acknowledge our need for the church. So in response to Psalm 95, the author not only cautions the church to take care lest they have an unbelieving heart. But look at what he also says in in verse 13, right? He says, but exhort one another every day. Every day, as long as it's called today. One of the ways that God protects us from unbelief is through brothers and sisters in Christ who exhort us every day to hold fast to the promises of God. That we need other believers in our life who are encouraging us, who care for us, who hold us accountable, who challenge us to continue in the gospel. You see, the church isn't some optional part of the Christian life, but rather the church is necessary and it's needed for our endurance in Christ. You see, calling upon the language of Psalm 95, the author of Hebrews tells us, that we should keep exhorting one another as long as it's called today. Today, right? Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart, the psalm says. So today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. So, so every day is today until Jesus comes back. Right? We're in the wilderness until we enter into the promised land. Today is the day. So every day, the Spirit is speaking to his saints through the word of God. Every day, the body of Christ should be spurring one another on in the word of God. And so in light of this calling, right, to exhort one another every day until all the promises of God to the church are fulfilled at Christ's return, let me, let me apply that principle in two ways speaking of the consistency and the frequency of church let's talk about the consistency real quick the church should consistently assemble together for the purposes of exhorting each other in the word of God it has been the pattern for the church to gather each week on the Lord's day for worship ever since Jesus rose from the grave that's been the pattern and the author of Hebrews makes this point explicitly later on. If you've got your Bible open, flip over to Hebrews chapter 10 real quick. Look at Hebrews 10, verse 23 and through 25. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. You see, the church should consistently, consistently, regularly assemble together in order to encourage one another as the day of Christ is drawing near. This is what what we should be about, that we should get into the habit of regularly being here for corporate worship. And we must not get into the bad habit of regularly missing corporate worship each week. And when you neglect the consistent assembly of the saints in your life, You are being exposed to the dangers of unbelief. You see, a 2014 study tracked the attendance trends of different religious groups in America. And so here are the statistics of those who self-identify as evangelical Protestants. And again, this is just those who identify themselves as this. So he says 41% of evangelical Protestants said they attend church at least once a week. 23% said they attend once or twice a month or few times a year, and 10% said they seldom slash never attend, and 25% said they didn't know, which I'm going to assume they're not attending, (laughs) right? So what do these numbers reveal, right? Just a, a survey of evangelicals in America. Well, as many church leaders have noted, including I've recognized in my own observation, people even committed members of the church are attending church less and less frequently. So this is a nationwide pattern that doesn't seem to be going away. Gone are the days, so it seems, where people used to attend church 50 out of 52 weeks of the year. It just doesn't seem to be the normal thing anymore. And what explains this trend? Well, I think lots of things do. I think in general we, we of course, fail to prioritize weekly worship attendance being here for the the assembly of the saints. And we idolize a lot of activities that take place on Sundays. There's a lot more competition out there nowadays. Gone are the blue laws that kept things closed on Sundays, right? So people have all sorts of things they can choose from. Soccer, recreation, leisure, sleeping in, you know, all sorts of things you can do. So people tend to be traveling more as well, taking more and more vacations, and more and more they're not coming back in time to be there for Sunday. They're, They're taking that extra day and missing the Lord's worship and so I'm not anti-vacation nor am I saying that you can't miss a Sunday every now and then I'm not being legalistic about this but what I am saying is that we have to acknowledge that we are now living in a Christian culture that doesn't prioritize nor value the consistent weekly attendance of worship so because we live in that culture you and I if we're going to buck this trend we have to prioritize church We have to rearrange our schedules for it. It means we must say no in order so that we can say yes to church. And we must not forsake the consistent assembly of the saints. You see, you always prioritize what's important to you. That's one thing I've learned just through watching people, talking with people. You're going to prioritize what you love. You're going to prioritize what's important to you in your scheduling, and your finances, whatever it is, Right? And so this trend just is indicative of the fact that for many Christians, the regular, weekly, consistent assembly of the church just really isn't all that much a priority in their lives. I'll go to church if I happen to have a Sunday free. So why don't people make it a priority? Well, I think there's, there's probably two reasons why. One is because we just don't think it's all that important to worship the Lord. You just don't realize it's important to come and gather on Sunday and give worship to the Lord each week. But I think the biggest one is probably the second one, which is reflective of the first, and it's that we just don't think it's needed or necessary. Again, it's that idea that church is is optional, I don't really need this for my life, for my faith. So this attitude is pervasive. I remember one time I was teaching on the importance of attending church, and one guy, you know, Gave, gave an amen, he said, yeah, it's important that we come to church because the pastor needs somebody to preach to. The attitude, of course, being that you know, that if we don't come to church, if we're not here, then the pastor's not going to get what he wants to do. He's not going to get to say his piece. He's not going to get that bee out of his bonnet this week, right? As if I'm, I'm attending the church by, and I'm doing that in order to do a favor for the pastor, right? I'm helping the pastor out by being here today. You know, I got a lot I could be doing, pastor. There's a lot going on in my life, but, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show up today and help you out so you can have somebody to preach to, right? That tends to be the way a lot of people think, even if they don't say it like this one guy did. A lot of times we, we think that, but such an attitude, I think, exposes why so many don't prioritize the consistent assembly of the church. And it's because they don't think they need it. They don't think they need it. They think that the church is some sort of civics club, right? Where where the group is just fortunate enough to have your presence, right? You're doing us a great honor just by being here. You're lucky I decided to come today. What would you be doing without me, right? That's the way we tend to think of ourselves as we come. However, the church is nothing of the sort. We gather together for worship, first and foremost, to worship God. And secondly, we gather for weekly worship because you need it, I need it. You need to be exhorted. You need to be spurred on towards holiness. You need to be reminded of the promises of God. You need to be reminded of what Christ has done for you upon the cross. You need the worship of the church body to recalibrate your wandering heart that has slowly drifted off course in the last seven days. You need the corporate worship of the body. Listen, you're not going to consistently attend worship by the pastor guilt-tripping you into it, right? Guilt's a a terrible motivator. Doesn't doesn't accomplish anything. But what ought to motivate us to consistently prioritize church attendance is what we see here in Hebrews chapter 3. That when you realize, right, when you confess that you are a sinner who has a fickle heart, with a disposition to disbelieve, then you will acknowledge that you need the church. I need the church to exhort me to hold fast to my faith in Christ, to stir me up to love and good works so that I will hold my confession firm till the end. I need these people. I need their ministry for my own soul's sake. You see, you prioritize worship because you're convinced, right? You're convinced deep down in your soul that the church is God's gift to you. You're not God's gift to the church. The church is God's gift to you to exhort you to persevere in your faith until Christ comes again for you. You see, until you realize that, church will never be a priority in your life or in your schedule. It'll always just be something else you do in your life. In your already busy and hectic schedule. So, this whole pattern of missing church is a dangerous one. So, for the sake of your own soul, right? Here in, in Hebrews, God commands you to consistently assemble together with His church. Not just for His own sake and for His own glory, but He commands you to do that for your own good so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. That means that if you are going to be a covenant member at Redemption Church, we will love you enough and that we will keep watch over your soul enough that we want to make sure you are consistently assembling with the body, with the saints. How did 10 million people in the Southern Baptist Convention go missing? Well, it's because the body of Christ failed to exhort one another faithfully. Now, we aren't going to be be standing at the door with a clipboard. I wouldn't use a clipboard. You know me. I'd use an iPad, right? (laughs) But we're not going to stand there with an iPad ready to to pounce on you and come to your house right after church, knocking on your door, waking you up out of bed. That's not what we're about, right? But, But at the same time, if we notice that you haven't been around in a month, we haven't seen you any Sundays, right? the elders of the church are going to love you enough and shepherd you enough and care for your soul enough. Well, we're going to come and give you a call and check in and see what's going on because we're worried about you because we love you, because we've covenanted together. We've agreed to look out for one another, to watch out for one another's soul. And that as a member, you have given the church permission to hold you accountable even to your attendance. We want to care for one another well. We want to exhort one another consistently to attend church. We want to love each other so much that we don't want to leave a sister or a brother in Christ behind. We pray that Redemption Church will be a great success. We pray that this room will, will quickly fill in the coming months and that the Lord would, would bless us a number. And we pray that in many ways, Redemption Church would be a, quote, statistical success. But in that, we do not want to leave behind a single soul in the name of expediency and progress and success in the world's eyes. We want to be faithful to what God's word has called us to do in looking out for one another. We don't want to just have numbers for numbers' sake if we're not shepherding and caring for people's soul well, particularly those who have covenant together in Redemption Church. We go and we help our brothers when they stray. We care for one another well. We exhort one another consistently, right? And we love one another, and we make sure none are left behind. Let's talk about frequency. So we talked about consistency. Let's talk about the frequency. Uh, How frequently should we be doing this? (laughs) How frequently should we be exhorting one another in the promises of God? And the author of Hebrews tells us, right? Every day. Not just Sundays. Not just on the Lord's Day, but he says Every day, you who are in community together, you and the church, are to be exhorting one another in these promises, right? Of Christ and the hope that we have. The author of Hebrews pushes back on this idea of the church as a Sunday event. You see, a lot of Christians just see church as an event they attend rather than a community to which they belong. Church as an event is all about what happens now, right here on Sunday morning. This is the church, right? And with events like this, even though we're we're still a small growing congregation, but but even in smaller growing congregations, people can still get lost, can't they? It's quite easy to come in and and to hide among the numbers, to even sneak in and out without anybody noticing who you are or whether you've been there or, you know, they, it's easy to, to skip around and and to not be known or in community in any sense. And, and these Sunday morning people who are kind of attenders only, you know, they're, I guess, better off than people who don't attend at all to church, but, but they are missing the beauty and the intentionality of the community of the church. These people tend to be church hoppers who jump around from congregation to congregation, but they never commit anywhere. They're they missing out on the beauty and daily exhortation that comes from the community of the church. You see, as we guard against our own unbelieving hearts, the community of the church is the gift that protects us. So when you let other believers into your life, another brother, another sister into who you are, and you share in your struggles, and you experience the accountability and the community of the church, Your spiritual growth is going to accelerate. You're going to grow in Christ. You're going to become more protected, more mature in Jesus. More than just attending worship, you need to belong to the covenant community of the church. You need to be a member, a covenant, invested, committed member of the church. You see, the community of the saints is not just a -a once-a-week event, but it's a daily sharing in one another's lives. It means that you develop relationships with one another, with other believers, and that you bring them into the rhythms of your life. And as Redemption Church, and as we look towards covenanting together, we all need to be intentional of looking for ways that we can exhort one another in the promises of God, not just on Sunday, but in the rhythms of our lives, right? It means that we develop relationships with, with other believers in the church. It means that we check in on them and we let them know that we're praying for them and we know what's going on in their lives and we check in on how they're doing. It, it means that you should send somebody a text message and schedule a coffee with them before work one day and just to counsel with them and maybe read the scriptures together. It, it means that you, you meet the needs of the church by helping a family that's going through a difficult time. It, it means that you intentionally look for ways to exhort the church to faithfulness as long as it's called today, and today's today, and tomorrow will be today, right? Every day we should be exhorting one another to to these truths, and and guys, I think we've got work to do here. I think our ladies tend to be much more prone to this than men are, right? Men, we just kind of are in our own worlds most of the time, right? Just kind of living live in our life midweek. I, I'm constantly amazed by how many text messages Caitlin gets a day and how quickly she responds to them. And, and all of them are often other ladies checking in, praying for each other, providing encouragement, right? What a wonderful thing to see. And, and guys, we just tend not to do that kind of stuff all that much, right? But, we, but whether we're male or female in different capacities, we need to figure out ways, maybe not through texting, but through other avenues, right, where we can be intentional in one another's lives. We shouldn't only being, be having contact with each other on Sunday mornings. Right, If that's all the contact we're having with one another as a body, then there's something seriously seriously defunct and wrong going on. We need to, to be intentional with one another's lives. You see, we all have this tendency to compartmentalize our lives, to, to take our lives and to, to put everything in ni- nice, neat little boxes that, that don't interfere with each other and, and don't touch each other. Right? We all tend to be a little OCD with our lives in that sense, not wanting anything to touch. So we've got our work life over here, we've got our family life over here, we've got my recreational life, and, and then I've got my church life. And all of those are segmented out. None of them interact, none of them interfere with one another. But as a Christian, you can't do that, right? You, you can't compartmentalize your life. You know why? Because Christ is your life. He is your life. And every aspect of your life is under the lordship of Christ. And therefore, you must steward your life well for the glory of God. This means that your church life ought to splash and spill over into every other area of your life, right? It means that you have contact and fellowship with members of the church outside of Sunday mornings. It means that, that each day you think of opportunities and ways that you can minister to, you, to the, your brothers and sisters at Redemption Church outside of Sunday morning. It means you look for those opportunities, finding ways that you can encourage someone else in this room to hold fast to the promises of Christ. You see, the frequency of our life together should be unceasing. It should be a part of our life together as a church. That as a covenant member, we have an obligation to one another. To ensure that we are exhorting one another in Christ through the word of God, who the author of Hebrews will say later on in chapter 3, right? That that it's sharper than a double-edged sword piercing to the very marrow of our hearts. As we press into the word of God together and as we encourage one another towards faithfulness in Christ, the church will become a beautiful, a beautiful community that sacrificially cares for one another and protects one another from the deceitfulness of sin. Even if it means a loving rebuke, even if it means the enacting of church discipline on a member, all of it is done in love. We must do everything possible to ensure that every one of us crosses that finish line of faith. Now you might be thinking, well, I've never been a part of a church that understands church membership in this way. The way you're describing this vision sounds exciting. It sounds beautiful and, to be honest, a little terrifying all at the same time. You know, the reason we covenant together, right, the reason we do this is because we individually recognize the deceitfulness of our own hearts and we acknowledge our need for the church. The church is God's gift to you, God's gift to me to protect and to help and help us endure the hard and difficult pilgrimage known as the Christian life. And if you are a Christian this morning, I pray that the Lord would lead you to belong to the family, the covenant family of Redemption Church. That as we're preparing to covenant together in August, we do so with heavy hearts, knowing of the responsibility and the commitment that we will make before God to care for one another for his glory. And if the Lord leads you to do that, I pray that you'll be coming back out on Sunday nights and pray about becoming one of the founding members of Redemption Church. And if you're not a Christian this morning, this whole sermon probably sounds a a little bit strange to you. Why would I want to follow Jesus if it's going to be hard? And if I need other people to do it? You see, we follow Jesus no matter the cost because he has given us a true and certain promise and it is upon this promise that we believe that Jesus has died for our sins that he has risen from the grave and that he will come back and rescue us we believe that he will bring us out of the wilderness and into the land of promise and upon this we believe in faith that the certain promises of forgiveness and grace and peace and rest, those can be yours this morning if you would but confess your sin, turn from it, and trust in Jesus as your Savior and as your Lord. And by doing so, you can know this Christ, this Jesus, as your Savior and Lord, and you can know that your eternity will be secure in him and that he by his grace, will enable you by his own power to reach the promised land. And we would gladly, gladly welcome you into our own covenant family upon your profession, that we would gladly stand beside you, lock arms with you, and carry you across the finish line upon our backs if we must. For the same Jesus that saved us by his grace will sustain us through all of life's trials. And through the gift of his church, he will hold us fast and he will bring us to the land of promise. Let's pray together. Father, we are overjoyed by your gift of the church. Father, today we acknowledge that our own hearts are sinful and rebellious, that they're so prone to disbelief and discouragement and despair. And Father, that By your wonderful grace, you've given us the church, the local church, to be there to protect us, to exhort us, to encourage us. Father, we pray that by your great power, that you would keep us all in the faith until you come again. And Father, we pray that we would be intentional by being involved in one another's lives, by being consistent and frequent in our ministry to one another, that the Saints of Redemption Church, that we would lock arms together and all cross the finish line together. And that when one of us goes down, that we will be quick to throw them over our shoulders and carry them by your great strength. Lord, so that they cross the finish line too. Father, we pray that as we continue to think about the wonderful gift that is the church, that you would help us to really examine our own hearts, to repent of sin, but also to freshly commit ourselves to commit ourselves in covenant to a local body of believers, not just attending on Sundays, but being active and involved in the daily exhortation of the promises of God to one another. Father, I do pray for those in this room who don't know Christ. I pray, Lord, that you would draw them to yourselves, that you would lead them to turn from their sins and trust in Christ and the promise of salvation that you have given them. And Father, that you would save them from their sin. And Lord, join them to this wonderful body where we can assure one another by your great grace that we will cross the finish line together. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.